0: Good morning. It's great to be together today. Let me ask you, what is the avenue through which our relationship with God is most obvious? Some folks will say through our church attendance that when we regularly go to church, we most obviously display this work of God in our life. We most obviously display our Christianity. Others will say, well, it's in our morality having proper morals and moral behavior abstaining from certain kinds of immoralities and tying ourselves to certain kinds of moralities. That exemplifies our Christianity. Others will still say, well, it's it's your religious zeal the passion with which you carry out your life and your religion, and the depth at which you have in your theology, these conversations about what you believe and how you believe. Others will think that it's orthodoxy. Having all of the right beliefs are the ways that I most demonstrate my true Christianity. You may actually have some other ideas that you would throw in to try to answer that question. But Jesus kind of shatters all of that with the Sermon on the Mount. And what he does is he teaches us the essence of 1 John. The essence of especially 1 John chapter 4, wherein the chief indicator of our Christian faith of our following Jesus is how we treat other human beings. And Jesus, as He gets into the depths of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to begin to make some statements about our relationships with other people that at first glance, and I hope you listened as Steve read those, they're literally going to seem to be impossible. Especially when the closing statement of this chapter, chapter 5, is, therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so as Jesus begins to get into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, and He starts talking about the do's and the don'ts, of this new kind of kingdom, this new kind of life, he's going to make expressly clear that the heart of Christianity is revealed in human relationships. In fact, every instance in Matthew five twenty-one through 48, of the revelation, every instance of the revelation of Christian character is done in the context of how we view and how we treat other human beings. Starting most intimately with those who are of the family of faith and extending globally to those who are of the family of humanity, Jesus is going to say what will distinguish you from everybody else. The way that you will shine as we're commanded in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The way that that is predominantly going to happen is by how we treat our family of faith and how we treat our human family. And so he's going to get into intimate detail. Everything from family life to sexual life. To our relationships with our neighbors. And in every one of these instances, He's going to demand something far more reaching than the law ever demanded. In fact, I think the word we could put over this is impossible. Mission impossible. How could... This be In fact, after one of the teachings that Jesus had on some of the issues in Matthew, the disciples turned to him and said, Lord, if it's like this, who can be saved? And Jesus immediately said, With men, this is impossible. But what did he say after that? With God, all things are possible. So as we step into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to step back and say, what is Jesus doing here? Why is He saying the things that He's saying? What is His point in all of this? We have to begin to wrestle through these human relationships that He points out are difficult. And that the demands that He makes in those relationships are of our own ability literally impossible to do he is going to be pointing us somewhere to a greater reality that we will see as the sermon unfolds i want you to look in verse 21 of Matthew 5 with me and i want you to see the beginning of a number of statements that jesus will make six times he will make pretty much the same statement in these verses verses 21 through 48 six times He will say this in verses 21 and 22. You can mark it. He'll say it again in verses 27 and 28. He'll repeat it in verse 31 and 32, repeating it again in 33 and 34, 38 and 39, and then finally in 43 and 44. So he's going to say the same thing essentially six times. Now, anytime Jesus repeats something six times, I would say to you, it probably ought to move up onto our radar, and we ought to say, no, why is Jesus repeating something six times in this short of a statement? As long as it seems, these 27 verses look like they're giant, but really it's a brief section of the Scripture, but it is packed. And over and over again, He says this statement. What does he say? Well, the heading is in verse 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told. Now, it's likely that this statement refers to the moment that Moses gave the law to the people. It's very likely that this was the initial moment when the covenant was made. The old covenant. And when Moses came down and spoke, for God and he said these are the words of God and he gave them the ten commands and then all of the law that flowed out from those ten commands that we find in Exodus and Leviticus excuse me, Leviticus I can't speak this morning and Numbers and Deuteronomy so all of this kind of flows out and it's a statement from God so when we hear you have heard that the ancients were told it is likely that every Old Testament quote that Jesus makes directly in verses 21 through 48 is a reference to that moment when God spoke. He spoke through Moses and he said, This is the covenant. Now, after Jesus makes that statement, he makes an implication in several of the passages afterward, that some things were added to the statement. Let me give you an example in verse 21. In verse 21 he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder. So that's the ancient... Covenant statement, you should not murder. And then he adds some things, such as, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So he's going to say, now, something's been attached to that original statement that is either part of Old Testament history or part of Jewish history or part of what we call rabbinical tradition. What's rabbinical tradition? It was what the preachers had said as they preached through the ages, either at the temple or in the synagogues. And so there's that original statement that the ancients were given. And then there's sometimes an attached statement that the rabbinical or the priestly or sort of the prophetic tradition added to that. And then there is a counter to it in the verse following, like at verse 22. Here's the counter. But I say to you. So number one in your outline, let's just kind of, jump in, there was an implied contrast in Jesus' statement. There's an implied contrast. There's. You have heard that the ancients were told, plus, you might have heard also, but I say to you. So there's this contrast. Something is a little different between what they originally heard and then what they heard along the way and then what Jesus is going to tell them. So there's this, when you read books of theology and commentaries, they call these antitheses. Now that's probably the wrong word for it, because it's not really a contradiction. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, go ahead and murder. That would be a real antithesis. Okay, that would be a contradiction. But He doesn't say that. Rather than nullifying what is originally stated, listen carefully, He's magnifying. He's moving from an action to an attitude. From a regulation to a motivation. From a command to a kind of character. So Jesus is not nullifying, He's magnifying. What he's going to do is he's going to say, floating on the sea of the commands of God are these regulations, these commands. He's going to dive under that surface and he's going to say, but this is what is laying under those commands. So... There's an implied contrast between what appears on the surface. Remember that the Pharisees were really, really good. We just read that in verse 20. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Remember, they were excellent in things of morality, in things of religion, in things of orthodoxy. All of the things that we might say are the demonstration of true religion, Jesus says, oh no, it's way more than something on the surface. It's, it's something else. It's something under. So we go to number two. There was an underlying cause for Jesus' statements. Something's going on. Something's changing. Here's Jesus standing up saying... Hey, you remember when Moses told the ancients these things? And, and and you know that along the way how we've interpreted those things, either through the scribes and the Pharisees or through the, the rabbis who've come along and those things we've kind of attached to them. Well, you've heard those things, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to magnify the original meaning so that you see it differently. And so there's a cause we have to kind of start digging around saying, why would Jesus come in and say something different? This is a challenge for us. Why would Jesus come in and say something different? If God's law is perfect, if it is good, if it is clean, all of those descriptions that the psalmist says in Psalm 119 about what the law is, if it is all those things, then why something different? Now, Uh. If you have a Bible, pull it, pull it out and grab hold of it real quick. Because we're going to do something. I want you to go to the beginning of your Bible. And open up and see if you can find a page that looks like... It's going to take me a second. My pages are a little stuck together. See if you can find a page that looks like this. For those of you who are in the back who are like me who can't see... It says the Old Testament, okay? <laughs> if you were holding this up back there, I would not even know you had a book in your hand. So the, the Old Testament. So open your Bible to this page, all right? All right? Now, we know that the Old Testament... Now, there's a problem in our language because back in the day, the word testament was a, was, meant something different than today. When we say testament, we immediately think about a book, we think, immediately think, well, but, but that's really not, it should say the Old Covenant. That's what the word Testament meant when this name was given. So, you could say, in fact, some newer translations will actually do that. They'll put the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. Now, there's a different part in your Bible, isn't there? All right, let's go to it. See if we can find it. It's right there before Matthew. And I think as you get to Matthew, it's probably going to look like this. What does What's this one say? The New Testament or the New Covenant. Now, when Jesus steps in and He says, you, well, let me get it exactly right. The ancients were told, and you have heard. So He's going to say, In the Old Covenant, there was exactly what was said, and then there were interpretations of it. But I say to you, and this is very important for our understanding of Jesus' language at the Sermon on the Mount, and for our understanding of the Bible as a whole, Jesus is beginning, so let's go to number three. There was an unveiling of a change in covenants in Jesus' statement there was an unveiling. Jesus was about to begin to peel back the reality that He's going to state when He gets to the Lord's Supper. Remember at the Lord's Supper? We've done it enough times. If if you didn't grow up in church, you, you may not be familiar with this. But when we get to the Lord's Supper, when we have this gathering where we celebrate this breaking of bread which represents the body of Jesus, the perfect body the sinless person of Jesus that's broken. We have this picture of Him, and then then we drink the cup that represents His blood. Remember that Jesus, and if you've got a good old King James, it'll say it this way. It'll say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Or a newer translation will say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's happening is right now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is beginning to unveil the New Covenant. He's beginning to hint to it, to reveal it, to allude to it. So He's going to say, the ancients were told and you have heard, but I say to you, He is beginning to explain New Covenant Doctrine or New Covenant theology or New Covenant teaching. So there is a monumental shift in the place that we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount today. And that shift is a revelation that an Old Testament prophecy is coming true. Now let's go see that prophecy in Jeremiah 31 and then Ezekiel 36 Jeremiah 31 The covenant that God made with Israel with Moses as the mediator angels speaking to him according to the book of Hebrews this mediation of a new covenant I mean the old covenant this this event this covenant required two things It required somebody to hold it up on both ends. It was a covenant where God made promises and the people made promises. And if the people kept their part, the covenant would last. Well, the people didn't keep their part. So we get to Jeremiah chapter 31 and we come to verse 31. Let's go there. Remember that Jeremiah is prophesying at a time when Israel is being wiped out. The northern kingdom has fallen to Assyria and the people have been carried away into captivity. Now the southern kingdom is falling and the Babylonians are about to finish off Jerusalem. And the people are going, what about the covenant? And Jeremiah is going to teach them that they did not keep their end of the covenant, so they broke the covenant. And so God is going to come in and He's going to do something different. So look in verse 31. Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them. There's this picture in Old Testament theology and New Testament theology that God is the husband to Israel or Christ is the husband to the church in the New Testament and that the church is the bride. Well, in the Old Testament, that the people of God, the Jews, were the bride of God. It says they broke it, although I was a husband to them. Look in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. Now, I want you to mark that part because that's going to be the distinction of the new covenant. The distinction of the new covenant is that it is a matter of the heart. And God says, I'm going to do something. What is it? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God. They will be my people. So here is a new covenant. But this covenant's different. The Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. And what the Old Covenant could not do... So now I've got to jump around a little bit. I want you to go back up to point number two on your outline. Because on point number two, I gave you some Scripture that I think that we need and we need to be reminded of. The Old Covenant had a list of regulations, laws and commands... But it was powerless to do something. What was it powerless to do? It was powerless to change us. So I want you to come with me real quick to Romans chapter 8. And I I hate this bouncing around, but I think this morning it's going to be very necessary for us. Romans chapter 8. And I want you to look there with me. So think with me. Here comes Jesus and He says, I'm going to give you a contrast. The ancients were told this, but I say to you this. What He's doing is He's introducing the New Covenant. He's introducing that the New Covenant is not a list of rules written on a tablet of stone, but that it is... A love for God written on a new heart. It's completely different. It is a fulfillment of what was promised, but it does what the old covenant couldn't do. It does what the law could not do. Well, look in Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. There is therefore, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who, who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? Listen, please hear. Rules cannot save you. Law cannot save you. Old Testament covenant cannot save you. The salvation that is going to be introduced to us is a salvation radically different than the Pharisees understood. And the people were wowed by it when Jesus began to explain it. They went, huh? What is this new teaching? And this underlying cause for Jesus' statement is that the law cannot save us. The Old Covenant cannot redeem us. All it can do is diagnose us and tell us that there has to be a cure that comes from outside of us, not inside of us. And so when we get to Jesus' statement... The ancients were told, and you have heard, but I say to you, Jesus is beginning to unveil the new covenant and what the new covenant is going to be. Remember the statement where Jesus said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. So this new teaching that He's going to do is not going to be shoved into an old, dead, stony, cold heart. This new teaching is going to be written upon a brand New heart. Ezekiel 36. Let's go there. What the law cannot do. The law cannot save us. Rules. Orthodoxy. Religion. These things cannot redeem us. They cannot change us. They're all things that can regulate. They are all things that we can have as Commands and actions on the outside, but they can't change the heart. But Ezekiel gave this prophecy that Jesus is going to use as he teaches us at the Lord's Supper in Ezekiel chapter 36. Come down to verse 26 here's the lord's work in the new covenant moreover i will give you a new heart listen to those words when jesus is speaking matthew 5:21 through 48 he is not trying to insert a whole new group of rules into an old stony hard heart He is taking the underlying meaning, the profound desire of God Himself to inject His own character in us and He's injecting that into new hearts. How do we know that? Well, If you follow the Sermon on the Mount, we'll come back to Ezekiel, but think in the Sermon on the Mount, the first 11 verses are about a new people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verses 1-11 through says, this is what the new people look like. They are a new people because God has put a new heart into them. That new heart was a heart that first understood its spiritual poverty, that it had nothing to offer God, and it mourned and wept over it and had sorrow and contrition. And then it became meek and pliable and formable. And then it desired the one thing it did not have. It hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And then God put into them a pure heart. Blessed are the pure heart, for they shall see God. And it made them different toward people. Blessed are the peacemakers makers for they shall be called the sons of God and then it made them stand out so much that the world and the flesh and the devil hated them and he said blessed are the persecuted he starts out with a new people and then in the next section he says a new purpose this new people are going to live for one purpose here's the purpose. They're going to so love God that they live for His glory. They're going to do their religion. They're going to do their, their, their morality. They're going to do their, their kindness. They're going to do all the things they do in interactions with other people. They're going to do this for one reason. What is going to It's going to be for the glory of God, their Savior. They have a new heart. And they have a new purpose. So you got a new people in the first 11 verses. Then following that, you got a new purpose. They're going to live out the original intent of God. They were designed for His glory. They're not going to live for His glory. They're going to let other people see their good works so that God is glorified by their works rather than them. And then, they're going to have a new kind of interaction with other people. They're going to be different in their anger. They're going to be different in their sexuality. They're going to be different in their marriage. They're going to be different in the way they treat their enemies. They're going to be different in how they conduct their worship. They're going to be different in their relationships with other people. And so what's happening is that Jesus is describing what happens to a person when God gives them a new heart. It is not a new life of rules and regulations. It is a new heart of love. And so, when we get into this covenant in Ezekiel, listen to what he says. Verse, 30, uh, verse 25, I will sprinkle you clean with water and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and then what? Put a new spirit in you. What spirit inhabits the believer? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. And so He's radically and fundamentally different. But what does He do? He's not just putting something new in. He's taking the old out. And I will remove the heart of stone. That means... That God is removing that rebellious, hard-hearted, disobedient trait that marks unbelievers. So you see that this is a divine miracle. This is what Jesus referred to in John 3 when He looked at Nicodemus and He said, You... Are the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, what is Jesus doing in Matthew 5? First off, he's describing a new people. They're radically different, they're humble, they're peacemakers. They're ones who have pure hearts. There's this radical change that Ezekiel prophesied. Jeremiah prophesied. It's new people. And then they have a new purpose. They're living not for attention for themselves. Their religion is not a way of proving themselves to somebody. Their religion is a love for God being poured out. And then they're going to show in verses 21-48 through that this newness is most observable In how we treat each other and how we treat the lost people around us. That the most observable fact of real Christianity is not orthodoxy, it's not attendance, it's not morality, it's love. It's love for each other, it's love at the core of the family. Love in the family of faith and then love all the way out from general friendships to the world at large. It's love. And he begins to tick these off one at a time as he explains how this love will be manifested to other people. He begins to say it's it happens in the places you're normally angry. It happens in the place where you're normally tempted. It happens in the place where you're normally frustrated. It happens in the place where you're normally ticked off by somebody. It happens in the place where your greatest challenges come by how you're treated, whether somebody sues you or abuses you. It happens in all of these places. And what is going to shine is not your orthodox thought, but your love. It's going to shine in your family. It's going to shine in your family of faith. And so, what Jesus does here is He leads them on a quest. First, they have to see, all right, there's a contrast between the stuff Jesus is saying. He's not talking about the surface, He's talking about the heart. Then there's a cause. What is the cause? We know we can't change our hearts. Jesus, the stuff you're telling us is impossible. And then He's going to. Start saying, you know where this is going to come from? It's going to come from a new covenant. And He's going to unveil this at the moment of the Lord's Supper. Three years into His time with His disciples, He's going to suddenly drop this bomb on them and say, this cup, the cup you've been drinking for all these years, the sweet cup of redemption at the end of the Passover meal, what is this cup? That cup is my blood. And I'm making a new covenant with you. And I'm fulfilling what Ezekiel and Jeremiah said. I'm ripping that heart of stone out of you that was disobedient and rebellious and could think theologically and do theologically, but it could not love. And I'm going to change you. And in that new covenant, number four, there was an introduction to the need for a new creation when Jesus begins laying out what He teaches that we'll go in depth in the following weeks in verses 21-48, through in our flesh, I want to tell you something, my brothers and sisters, the very first thing every one of us ought to be able to say is, that's just impossible. (laughs) I can't do that. And that is exactly what you should say. Because what is being asked of here is not your ability, not your natural proclivities What is being asked here is for an almighty God to inject His supernatural power into you with a brand new heart and give you an ability that is not your own. That's what the new covenant is. It's not a new deal for you to try harder. It's not a new way for you to be more religious than the Pharisees. I don't think we could pull it off. It's not a new plan for you to have some kind of seven-step plan to get where you need to be. It is the ripping out of what keeps us from God. A broken, fallen, cold, stony, unredeemed heart. And an injecting of a living heart for God. That's what the new covenant is. And so when we begin to unfold these next verses and you begin to rear up in your flesh and say, that's unreasonable, that's impossible, that's exactly what you should say. Because at the end of it, you have to make an appeal to God to say, I cannot. I cannot do those things. And God says, I can We have to do just exactly like the disciples did in the end of Matthew 19, where after Jesus' statement about it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's easier to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, and the disciples turn and say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is when we begin to read verses 21 through 48, we have to understand God is not injecting these teachings into my old fallen flesh and asking me to do better. He's not injecting these teachings into my old stony lost unredeemed heart. He is taking and first giving you a new wineskin. And then He's going to pour His new wine in. And that new wineskin is a new heart. And that new wine is a new way of seeing everything. That's where He's going. And so when we begin to unfold the following verses, I will dare say to you that if it doesn't make you mad at some point along the way, then something's probably wrong with you or you're not listening. Because some of the things that we will say in the next weeks will raise your hackles and you'll say, that's impossible! And I want to say to you, I agree. I'm embracing you and agreeing with you now. It is impossible. And that's why Jesus makes His appeal to us in the context of a new covenant. You see, Jesus is the new Moses. He goes up onto the mountain and He begins to explain the new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. He in His blood will sign the pledge that God makes to make what Wendy said this morning to become true for you. How are those blue and red going to be mixed into purple in your life so that the love of God and your sinful nature are brought together and God would never leave you? It's because Jesus is going to sign this deal in His own blood. So that when you're in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And Jesus is also the author of a new creation. Come with me. I want to mention one verse and then I want to take you to another. I want to mention in Psalm 51.10, here's what David prayed. David a believer, David a follower, but David following under the old covenant appealed to God and he said this, David, a man after God's own heart, Psalm 51 praise. create in me a clean heart, O God. Why did he pray that? He used the word barah, which is only used of God. It means to make out of nothing. He wasn't asking for a reformation of his heart, a restructuring of his heart. David knew that he needed something brand spanking new. He understood the need for a new covenant from a long time ago. Jesus brings this to be true in us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let's go there and we close with this. And then I want to pass through three things in and with you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, (laughs) therefore means based on the Gospel, based on this new covenant, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, Everything is new. This is what Jesus is talking about when He says, You've heard it said, but I say to you. He's going to take that new understanding of the intent of the law and not insert it into your flesh so that you can do better. He's going to bring by the new birth a brand new heart. He's going to insert that teaching into the heart. And you will so love Jesus that you'll say, I know that's impossible, but I will give my life to let you do this in me. I know it's improbable, but I will give my devotion to let you shape this in me. I know that there is a low likelihood of me ever doing these things, but I Give myself to let you work these things in me. I know, God, this is a lifelong journey. But because I have a new heart that loves you, I want you to fill it with your teaching and let me do your will. Here's what happens. Down at the bottom of your sheet, you have head, heart, and hands. In the old covenant, it had to go head and hands. Why? Because the old stony heart just wouldn't get it. And so they had to get it and understand it, and they did the best that they could to do it. And in the Old Covenant, it didn't change the heart. But in the New Covenant, God teaches us. He says, hey, I want to tell you these things, and we're going to read some of these specific things in the next weeks. We're going to take it into our head. But it's going to have to be processed in our hearts by the love of Christ, because it was given to us by the One who loves us the most. And so we have to tie our affections to the teaching of Jesus. If we just tie our intellect to it, here's where it's going to stop. We'll say, that's impossible. I can't do that. You've made a standard I can't attain. You've given me something I can't do. You've gone beyond my capacity. And so what we have to say is, it has to go from intellect into a new, regenerate, born-again heart. And that heart has to have an affection for the teachings of God. The reason that they want Michael Jordan putting on Air Jordan tennis shoes is because the people who love Michael Jordan love what he loves. The reason they want a supermodel drinking Diet Coke, is they know that the people who see her and are admiring her want to do what she does. It's the whole reason for product endorsements all over the TV, and especially we see it during sports season. All these sports people doing certain things and pushing certain uh, products. Here's the deal. Why? Because when we idolize something or somebody, we want to be like it. God says when we put Him first... We want to love what He loves and our new heart wants to love what He wants us to love and we want to love what He does. So I'm going to ask you, if you bow with me, just a second as we close. Now, let's walk through this, head, heart, and hands. Jesus is going to teach us some things and we've learned some things today that intellectually we've got to process. We've got to process the reality of these contrasts. We've got to process that there is this, this... cause behind Jesus' teaching that our rules can't save us. Our efforts can't save us. Our morality and our orthodoxy, they can't save us. That, that there has to be a new covenant with a new creation in order for us to be saved. It has to be a work of God. We must be born again. And so, we have to process that. We wrestle through it. But it has to make a journey. About, about 18 inches, 12 inches, whatever it is, out to all you are, it has to move from your head to your heart, and you have to say, "I embrace this because my heart is different. I embrace it because I have the heart of God. He has given me a new heart, and so when He makes a demand of me, a command of me, it is not a ritual to be placed on the surface of my body." or to be carried out in a religious orthodoxy. It is something I am to embrace and love. Because I love God with this new heart. And if I love God, I love the things He loves. And so I have to move it from my head, I have to move it into my heart, and I have to embrace it and say, God, I love You. because I love You, I love Your Word, I love Your truth, and I'm going to just wrap my new wineskin heart around this new teaching of Jesus. And I'm going to be changed. Because You've changed me. And then it's going to move to my hands. My hands are going to extend in love when I'm angry rather than retaliating to forgive. My hands are going to extend in morality because I love God enough.